Welcome to Nicheless Narrative, Christmas edition with Shadows Pub. Today I'm bringing you another Stephen Leacock short story, Caroline's Christmas or the Inexplicable Infant. It was Christmas, Christmas with its mantle of white snow, scintillating from a thousand diamond points, Christmas with its good cheer, its peace on earth, Christmas with its feasting and merriment, Christmas with its, well, anyway, it was Christmas. Or no, that's a slight slip. It wasn't exactly Christmas. It was Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve with its mantle of white snow lying beneath the calm moonlight. And in fact, with practically the above list of a company circumstances with a few obvious emendations. Yes, it was Christmas Eve. And more than that, listen to where it was Christmas. It was Christmas Eve on the old homestead. Reader, do you know, by sight, the old homestead? In the pauses of your work at your city desk, where you've grown rich and a very various, does it never rise before your mind's eye, the quiet old homestead that you knew as a boy before your greed of gold tore you away from it? The old homestead? that stands beside the road just on the rise of the hill, with its dark spruce trees wrapped in snow, the snug barns, and the straw stacks behind it, while from its windows there streams a shaft of light from a coal oil lamp, about as thick as a slate pencil that you can see for miles away, from the other side of the cedar swamp in the hollow. Don't talk to me of your modern searchlights and your incandescent arts beside that gleam of light from the coal oil lamp in the farmhouse window. It will shine clear to the heart across 30 years of distance. Do not turn, I say, sometimes, reader, from the roar and hustle of the city with its ill-gotten wealth and its godless creed of mammon to think of the quiet homestead under the brow of the hill. You don't. Well, you skunk! It was Christmas Eve. The light shone from the windows of the homestead farm. The light of the log fire rose and flickered and mingled its red glare in the windows with the calm yellow of the lamplight. John Enderby and his wife sat in the kitchen room of the farmstead. Do you know what, reader? The room called the kitchen, with the open fire on its old brick hearth and the cook stove in the corner. It is the room of the farm where people cook and eat and live. It is the living room. The only other room beside the bedroom is a small room in front, chill cold in winter with an organ in it for playing Rock of Ages on when the company came. But this room is only used for music and funerals. The real room of the old farm is the kitchen. Does it not rise up before you, reader? It doesn't? Well, you darn fool. At any rate, there sat old John Enderby beside the plain deal table, his head bowed upon his hands, his grizzled face with its unshorn stubble stricken down with the lines of devastating trouble. From time to time he rose and cast a fresh stick of, of tamarack into the fire with a savage thud that sent a shower of sparks up the chimney. Across the fireplace sat his wife Anna on a straight-backed chair looking into the fire with mute resignation of her sex. What's wrong with them anyway? Ah, reader, can you ask? 
Do you remember? So little of the life of the old homestead. When I have said that it is the old homestead in Christmas Eve, and that the farmer is in great trouble and throwing tamarack at the fire, surely you ought to guess. The old homestead was mortgaged. Ten years ago, reckless with debt, crazed with remorse, mad with despair and persecuted with rheumatism, John Enderby had mortgaged his homestead for $24.30. Tonight the mortgage fell due, tonight at midnight, Christmas night. Such is the way in which mortgages of this kind are always drawn. Yes, sir. It was drawn with such diabolical skill that on this night of all nights, the mortgage would be foreclosed. At midnight, the men would come with the hammer and nails and foreclose it. Nail it up tight. So the afflicted couple sat. Anna, with the patient resignation of her sex, sat silent or at times endeavored to read. She had taken down from the little wall Bunyan's Holy Living, Holy Living, and Holy Dying. She tried to read it. She could not. Then she took down Dante's Inferno. She could not read it. Then she selected Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. But she could not read it either. Lastly, she'd taken down the Farmer's Almanac for 1911. The books lay litter about her as she sat in patient despair. John Enderby showed all the passion of an uncontrolled nature. At times he would reach out for the crock of buttermilk that stood beside him and drained a draught of the maddening liquid till his brain glowed like the coals of the tamarack fire before him. John, pleaded Anna, leave alone the buttermilk. It only maddens you. No good ever come of that. Ah, lass, said the farmer with a bitter laugh as he buried his head again in the crock. What care if it mad maddens me? Ah, oh, John, you better be employed in reading the good book than in your wild courses. Here, take it, Father, and read it. And she handed to him the well-worn book, black volume from the shelf. Enderby paused a moment and held the volume in his hand. He and his wife had known nothing of religious teaching in the public schools of their day, but the first-class, non-sectarian education the farmer had received had stood him in good stead. Take the book, she said. Read. John, in this hour of affliction, it brings comfort. Farmer took from her hand the well-worn copy of Euclid's Elements, and laying aside his hat with reverence, he read aloud. The angles at the base of an isosceles triangle are equal. And whosoever shall produce the sides, lo, the same also shall be equal unto each. The farmer put the book aside. It's no use, Anna. I can't read the good words tonight. He rose, staggered to the crock of buttermilk, and before his wife could stay his hand, drained it to the last drop. Then he sank heavily to his chair. Let them foreclose it if they will, he said. I'm past caring. The woman looked sadly into the fire. Ah, if only her son Henry had been here. Henry, who had left them three years ago and whose bright letters still brought 
from time to time the gleam of hope to the stricken farmhouse. Henry was in Sing Sing. His letters brought news to his mother of his steady success, first in the baseball nine of the prison, a favorite with his wardens and the chaplain, the best bridge player of the corridor. Henry was pushing his way to the front with the old-time spirit of the Enderbys. His mother had hoped that he might have been with her at Christmas, but Henry had written that it was practically impossible for him to leave Sing Sing. He could not see his way out. The authorities were arranging a dance and sleighing party for the Christmas celebration. He had some hope, he said, of slipping away unnoticed, but his doing so might excite attention. Of the trouble at home, Anna had told her son nothing. No, Henry could not come. There was no help there. And William, the other son, ten years older than Henry. Alas, William had gone forth from the homestead to fight his way in the great city. Mother, he had said, when I make my a million dollars, I'll come home. Till then, goodbye. And he had gone. How Anna's heart had beat for him. Would he make that million dollars? Would she ever live to see it? And as the years passed, she and John had often sat in the evenings picturing William at home again, bringing with him a million dollars, or picturing the million dollars sent by Express with love. But the years had passed. William came not. He did not come. The great city had swallowed him up as if, as it has many other, another lad from the old homestead. Anna started from her musing. What was that at the door? The sound of a soft and timid rapping and through the glass of the door pane, a face, a woman's face, looking into the fire-lit room with pleading eyes. What was it she bore in her arms? The little bundle that she held tight to her breast to shield it from the falling snow. Can you guess, reader? Try three guesses and see. Right you are. That's what it was. The farmer's wife went hastily to the door. Lord's mercy, she cried. What are you doing out in such a night? Come in, child, to the fire. The woman entered, carrying the little bundle with her, and looking with wide eyes. They were at least an inch and a half across, at Anderby and his wife. Anna could see that there was no wedding ring on her hand. Your name, said the farmer's wife. My name is Caroline, the girl whispered. The rest was lost in the low tones of her voice. I want shelter, she paused. I want you to take the child. Anna took the baby and laid it carefully on the top shelf of the cupboard, and she hastened to bring a glass of water and a doughnut and set it before the half-frozen girl. Eat, she said, and warm yourself. John rose from his seat. I'll have no child of that sort here, he said. John, John, pleaded Anna, remember what the good book says. Things which are equal to the same thing are equal to one another. John sat back in his chair. And why had Caroline no wedding ring? Ah, reader, can you not guess? Well, you can't. It wasn't what you think at all, so there. Caroline had no wedding ring because she had thrown it away in bitterness as she tramped the streets of the city. Why, she cried, should the wife of a man in the penitentiary wear a ring? Then she'd gone forth with the child from what had been her home. It was the old, sad story. She had taken the baby and laid it tenderly, gently, on a seat in the park. 
and she walked rapidly away. A few minutes after, a man chased after Caroline with a little bundle in his arms. I beg your pardon, he said, panting. I think you left your baby in the park. Caroline thanked him. Next, she took the baby to the Grand Central waiting room, kissed it tenderly, laid it on a shelf behind the lunch counter. A few minutes, an official, beaming with satisfaction, had brought it back to her. Yours, I think, madam, he said, as he handed it to her. Caroline thanked him. Then she left it at the desk of the Waldorf Astoria and at the ticket office of the subway. It always came back. Once or twice, she took it to the Brooklyn Bridge and threw it in the water. But perhaps something in the way it fell through the air touched the mother's heart and smote her, and she descended to the river and fished it out. Then Caroline had taken the child to the country. At first, she thought to leave it on the wayside, and she had put it down in the snow, and standing a little distance off, had thrown mullen sticks at it. But something in the way the little bundle lay covered in the snow appealed to the mother's heart. She picked it up and went on. Somewhere, she murmured, I shall find a door of kindness open to it. And soon after, she staggered into the homestead. Anna, with true woman's kindness, asked no questions. She put the baby carefully away in a trunk, saw Carolyn safely to bed in the best room, and returned to her seat by the fire. The old clock struck twenty minutes past eight. Again, a knock sounded at the door. There entered the familiar figure of the village lawyer. His astrakhan coat of yellow dogskin, his celluloid collar, and boots which reached no higher than the ankle, contrasted with the rude surroundings of the little room. Enderby, he said, can you pay? Lawyer Perkins, said the farmer, give me time and I will. So help me, give me five years more and I'll clear this debt to the last cent. John, said the lawyer touched in spite of his rough dogskin exterior. I couldn't if I would. These things are not what they, they were. It's a big New York corporation, Pincham and Company, that makes these loans now and they take their money on the day or they sell you up. I can't help it. So there's your notice, John, and I'm sorry. No, I'll take no buttermilk. I must keep a clear head to work. And with that, he hurried out into the snow again. This story comes from Leacock's nonsense novels. It's typical of his humor in many ways. He created parodies of typical stories of the era. The story is like a typical Christmas theme turned upside down. The elements in the story are confusing until you realize they re reverse symbols. The buttermilk would be eggnog. Euclid's elements would be the Bible. Carolyn's knock at the door in a typical Christmas story would bring the miracle that would save the day. The child has a newborn Christ vibe. The second knock ties the upside down part together to deliver the unexpected ending. Or would that be the expected ending without a miracle invention? intervention? Thank you for listening to the sixth of the Christmas podcast. The next episode will be Ella Montgomery's Christmas at Red Butte.